Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Thank you so much, Kendra and Brooke and Ben and Mark, for being a part of this. It's amazing that we can gather together. There's a few of us here spread out in the sanctuary. Um, we're missing all of you, but so glad that you guys can tune in where you're at. And Kendra basically covered everything for us this morning. So you can log off and go about your day. No, I'm kidding. We'll look into Matthew 21 some more. So Kendra already mentioned Matthew 21. That's a text that we're going to be in this morning. As a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for um, like a year and a half. And I've been praying and thinking about if we should continue going through that. And at least for today and this coming Sunday, we're going to be in Matthew. And so today we're going to continue talking about the conflict of kingdoms. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been looking at the kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom between Oftentimes, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are in direct conflict. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we're all feeling that a little bit right now. At least I've been feeling that this last week as, as this conflict rages within me between what I want and what is happening in the world. See, I have a vision for what I believe would be best for me, for my family, for my neighborhood, for our church, for our community, for our country, for our world. And the current reality of what's going on around the world does not match my vision or my desire for, for what I want or what I think would be best. I, much like the psalmist, wonder, where is God? Why isn't he doing more? Why is he allowing such chaos? Why is God leading in the way that he's leading? Or, or why does it seem like he's not leading at all, maybe, is what you may be asking and in the, midst, in the midst of these questions, I've been reminded by the book of Matthew that God has a perspective that I lack. That, that, and it's always been this way. So grab a Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 17. So we're going to extend it a little bit further than what Kendra brought us through. And as we look at that, we're going to see the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God of self. We're going we're gonna to see this ever-present conflict, the, the reality that, as Kendra already mentioned, what caused these crowds to go from shouting, Hosanna, blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to just a couple days later shouting out, crucify him. And what caused that ha to happen is this conflict that rages within each one of us, the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And so this morning, as we look at Matthew 21, we're going to see that play out. We're going to see kind of four different um, characteristics of this conflict play out as we go. Kendra already set the scene for us a little bit in Matthew chapter 21, but let me just summarize it for you. I'm not going to read the entire text, but we will be in it. So make sure you grab a Bible, open it up, use your phone to pull up a Bible if you're using your computer for the Facebook Live or reverse that order. However it works, just get your eyes on God's word. And if you are somebody watching this online today and you don't have a Bible, please email the church, reach out to us. We will send you a Bible. We will get you one. We want you to get in God's word this morning as we look at it together. So Matthew chapter 21, the stage is set. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on a colt, on a baby donkey, and everybody is, the, the, the city is packed with people. See, it's Passover. So Jews from all around the area have come to Jerusalem, the holy city, to celebrate Passover. And, and the stage is ripe. The setting is, is ripe for Jesus to be anointed as king. And all of the Jews are longing for him to become a political king, to be 
to, to sit on a throne and to overthrow the Roman government and to establish Jerusalem and the Jews as a prominent people, as a prominent nation. And Gentiles who have been following Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew, they're hoping to be on the winning side. They hope that Jesus becomes king, that he becomes a political ruler so that they can be on the winning team. And don't we all want to be on the winning team? We want the country that we live in or the culture that we are a part of to be prominent and to have, to have strength and power and safety. And so that's what people are hoping for from Jesus. And so as he rides into Jerusalem, the crowds have this expectation, this desire of the type of king that Jesus is going to turn out to be. And what he turns out to be does not match their expectation or their desire. Hence, the conflict of kingdoms between how God leads and what God does and what we desire and what we expect of him. And so as we walk through this text, we're going to see four different pieces of this conflict play out. And so I'll refer to different passages here. So keep the Bible open and we'll look at these passages as we go through together. So the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. The first difference that we see here is that the kingdom of God is made up of humble and interdependent people. And the kingdom of self is made up of proud and self-reliant people. So the kingdom of God, humble and interdependent people, the kingdom of self, proud and self-reliant people. We see this play out right away in the story. In Matthew chapter 21, you'll notice that I'll read the first part here. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, and this is just a, a little town right outside the gates of Jerusalem. So before they head into the city of Jerusalem, they pause and they're, they're getting ready for this grand entry, for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It says, To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And so some people get really hung up on this passage because the other gospel accounts, they only mention the colt. They don't mention the donkey and the colt. And so some people see a um, contradiction here in scripture. And, and what it's believed is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt, on the baby donkey. But this, this baby donkey, this colt, hadn't been separated from its mother yet. And so Matthew, he just he gives a little more detail to the story than does Mark and Luke and John by saying that they, they took both animals. Jesus rode on the colt. And when it says... Um, that, that he rode on them. It's saying the them, this is down in verse 7, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colts and put them on and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. The them isn't that he sat on both the donkey and the colt, it's that he sat on the colt and the cloaks over the colt. And so it's believed that they brought both the mother donkey and the baby colt, and they came together. So there's no contradiction here. That's, Matthew just gives us a little more detail than the other gospel writers. And what I want us to notice here in this, in this part of the story is that Jesus comes into town in humility. He's riding on a colt, a baby donkey. Any powerful king would be riding on a war horse. He would, he would come into town triumphantly on a war horse. It makes me think of the scene in Aladdin. I don't know how many of you have seen Aladdin in the last few years or how many of you have seen Aladdin at all. My family just watched the real-life version of Aladdin recently. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. But it, it reminds me of when Aladdin, um, he becomes the, the, 
uh, what is he, the prince of, he makes up some country. Um, I forget what it is. He has the genie make a country. He becomes the prince of that country. And he comes into town and, and he's riding on all these extravagant animals. He has this whole procession of people singing and dancing because that's how a king enters into a kingdom or how he, he lets everybody know that he's in charge, that he's powerful, that he's prominent. And this was the case in biblical times too. You would ride into town on a war horse. You would have this entourage with you, kind of fanning you with palm leaves. And, and instead in this scene, Jesus comes in humbly. He, he comes in humility. He's riding on a colt, a baby donkey, and people are laying their cloaks and their palm branches down for him to walk in on. The people are giving him honor, but he has humbled himself. Also, he's, he's interdependent. He's dependent on others to provide for him. So, so a king, a powerful king, a, a king on top, a king of the world, he would have people um, bringing out all of his stuff. He owns everything, and they're using his stuff to give him honor. Jesus here has to rely on somebody else to pro provide the cult that he comes in on. He's interdependent. He's dependent on others. He's dependent on the community that he's doing life with to provide things for him. He doesn't even have his own cult. Jesus was, was a poor, humble carpenter who was concerned about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self or the kingdom of earth. He wasn't acquiring things for himself. He didn't even have a stockpile of things to provide for himself. He didn't own his own colt or donkey to come into town on. He had to borrow one from somebody. And so even there, and, and of course, Jesus is God. He owns all things. He is the owner of all things. He could have, he could have acquired and stockpiled as much earthly goods as he wanted, but he shows us a way to live, and that's interdependent on one another. It's sharing our resources with one another. This doesn't mean that you can't have your own colt, like a car, to drive from here to there. But it is to say that people in the kingdom of God, if we want to follow Jesus and imitate him, our pathway is humility. And the way that, the way that we make it through life is by depending on one another. We're interdependent on one another. Now, compare that to the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self is proud and self-reliant. I think this is so prevalent in our culture. I mean, we, even as Americans, as I say, you should depend on others and you should be dependent on others, even as Americans. We're like, that's not right. I don't, I don't, I don't want to take advantage of the government. I don't want to take advantage of my family. I don't want to take advantage of the people around me. I want to be self-reliant. And there's a level of this that's good and fine and right. I'm not... I'm not making some political statement here, but just the reality of the contrast between, between the two. That the kingdom of self finds its identity in being self-reliant. And the pathway of Jesus in the kingdom of God, there's no problem with being dependent on others and being interconnected to one another and relying on other people for help. And we see even Jesus does that. He borrows a colt on which he rides into town to be praised and to be crowned as king. He's humble. He's a humble king. He's, he's interdependent on others. Secondly, in the kingdom of God, we, we see that people pursue God in prayer. And in the kingdom of self, they use God for profit. And so the kingdom of God pursues God in prayer. Kingdom of self uses God for profit. We see this play out here in the story. If you jump down to chapter, uh, stay in chapter 21, but jump down to verse 12. And so this is the next morning. Jesus rides into town. Town is, town is bursting at the scene with excitement, with enthusiasm. They're proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. He's coming. 
glory in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. They're ready to crown Jesus as king. The next morning, he goes into the temple, into the Jerusalem temple. In verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so here we see this contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. In the kingdom of God, we pursue God in prayer. Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Those who would follow Jesus' path, those who would come after him, those who would want to walk a similar path that he walked, would see their relationship to God and their standing in the kingdom of God as one of a son or a daughter pursuing a father through prayer. On the flip side, the kingdom of self uses God for profit. There's people at the temple, we learn this in verse 12, at the temple exchanging things, using religion for profit. And so I put God lowercase and in quotes there because they're not really following and submitting to and honoring and worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. They're, they're using religious goods and services for their own personal profit. This is still very prevalent today. I mean, many churches get sidetracked because they, they think they have to um, take care of the bottom line or take care of the budget. Many pastors give in to temptation of wanting to use their flocks, use their ministries, use their platform for their own personal profit to up their book sales, to up their Facebook Live views or whatever it may be. And this is just inherent in the human heart and soul is to use other things for our own personal profit. We see this, again, in, in various religions, in the Christian religion, and this isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus rides into the temple. He goes into the temple. He turns over the money-changing table. See, really what people are doing here is they're sitting in the temple. They're selling different things that people could use to make sacrifice with. And so they're kind of playing on religious fear and a good religious desire that people want to feel right with God. And so people would come to the temple on Passover and and people are, are using that setting to sell things to make a personal profit, playing on people's religious fears and religious traditions and religious practice. And it's not much different today, church. And so keep that in mind. Check your own heart with that and, and, and check your churches with that. And keep in mind that oftentimes in the kingdom of self, the kingdom of the world, we get sidetracked. We use God for personal profit rather than pursuing God in prayer. This, this just reminds me that the temple is now where? It's not here. It's not the sanctuary that I'm sitting in this morning. Some of you, we feel like we're missing out because there's some synergy, there's some power when we gather together to worship Jesus and we're a community in each other's presence. The, the presence of God is, is oftentimes more, more keenly experienced when we are gathered together because there's some synergy. But the temple is not the church building. The temple is the people of God. And so we can pursue God in prayer wherever we are. When Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, at, at that moment, he's speaking of the physical temple in Jerusalem. But as we take in mind what Jesus has come to do, and as he teaches us that the temple becomes the people where the spirit of God is living, we can pursue God in prayer wherever we are. And this helps to, to keep us out of the mindset of using God for profit. In fact, just this morning, I was walking through the church building and I went into one of our kids' classrooms. And from a couple weeks ago, last time we were gathered, I saw, oh, I forgot to add it in. Never mind. 
Um, I put a picture in a slide here and I forgot to update it between a half an hour ago when I took the picture and now when I'm sitting in front of you. Um, on a whiteboard down in one of our kids, parks, kids park room, there's a picture of a temple. Somebody on a whiteboard just drew a hand-drawn hand picture of a temple and it said, the temple then. The temple in the Old Testament time, the temple pre-Jesus' life and ministry time. And then on the other side, it had a person and it said, the temple now. And then some kid had like drawn Lakers and basketball on it. So apparently they think that the Lakers are Christians and the temple of God is living within the Los Angeles Lakers. Maybe he is. But the point is that the temple of God is not a place. It's a people. It's a people who have the Holy Spirit residing in them. And so the kingdom of God is made up of people who have the Holy Spirit in them, who are pursuing God in prayer, not using God for profit, not using God to build build better buildings and bigger buildings and to create a personal empire, a personal platform where they get more recognition, where they get more prestige and more honor. And Jesus turns that whole thing upside down. The third one that we see here is the kingdom of God sends people out to heal the hurting, where the kingdom of self keeps people in and forms holy huddles, if you will. And so look at uh, verse 14 with me. So Jesus, he rides into town, everybody's praising, everyone's St. Hosanna, expecting him to be this great king. He rides into town, continues on his way. He goes into the temple. He overturns the money changers. He makes the point that in his kingdom, we're people of prayer, not people working for profit. And then move into verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. See, Jesus is healing people. He's helping people who are hurting. And throughout the entire book of Matthew, we see him doing this. He's performing miracle after miracle. He's meeting people's needs. He's, he's caring for hurting people. He's healing hurting people. And he's empowering his disciples and sending his disciples out to do the same. This is Jesus's ministry. He's caring for the broken. He's bringing healing to the hurting. And he's expecting you and I to do the same. And sometimes this may be through miraculous prayer, through laying on of hands and, and a miraculous healing. Other times, the way that we care for the hurting may be to open up our homes and to use our extra room for somebody to stay in for a while. Maybe for us to use our dining room tables, not just for our own little family, but to have other families into our home and into our lives. It, it means opening our church building for the community to use and people who are looking for respite, looking for safety to use. Jesus sends us out to heal the hurting. Again, that may be through some miraculous display of his glory, or it may just be through the simple things that you do, like picking up groceries for your neighbor, moving their garbage can in and out, whatever it may be, however you can build bridges to make relationships with the hurting. We see that's the heart of Jesus. He comes into the temple. He overthrows the religious system. He overthrows the people using his temple for profit. He says, this is a place of prayer, and what he does there is to heal the hurting. In contrast, the kingdom of self, it keeps people in and forms holy huddles. So oftentimes religious circles are guilty of this, where, where we, we try and conform everyone to the certain type of theological interpretation. We, we have these holy huddles or like you kind of group think. Churches are classic for having groupthink, where certain people who think this thing go to this church and other people who think this thing go to this church. And, and this isn't Jesus's way at all, church family. It's kind of this human mindset. It's the kingdom of self. It's wanting to protect ourselves. It's wanting to get people who think like us and act like us around us. 
It's really this, this intent to keep ourselves safe and to keep bad out and to not want to get near something that could alter our lives or, or impact our own little kingdom of comfort and idolatry and having things the way that we want to have things. And so you see Jesus, he comes into the temple, he heals the hurting and look at the religious response, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, the kingdom of self, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of religion, it, it wants to keep people in. It wants to hoard people. It wants to contain people. And it forms holy huddles. It, it, it asks like, well, do you believe these certain particularities? Well, then you're in. Do, do, you, do you have these certain philosophies of life? Do you have this certain political leaning? Do you, have this certain, do you have these certain legalisms or ways of doing Christianity? And, and then when something challenges that, they get indignant. And so keep this in mind, church family. Look at the heart of Jesus, that he comes to heal the hurting. And the religious elite, those who are living underneath there, there's kind of this deception. They believe they're living for the kingdom of God. But really, we see the fruit of living for the kingdom of self or the kingdom of this world is that you get indignant when hurting people are actually getting help. When somebody who's broken, when somebody who's addicted, when somebody who hasn't lived their life religiously right, all of a sudden, all of a sudden starts getting the favor of God, religious people get indignant about that. Because they feel like they're entitled to get good things from God. Because they've worked hard for it. And that's not the way of Jesus. We see that Jesus has come to heal the hurting, to care for the broken. Not to form holy huddles. Not to create these little silos of religious people where you have to clean yourself up before you can join the team. And then the last one that we see here, this contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Is that in the kingdom of God, praise flows from truth and trust. And in the kingdom of self, praise is contingent on circumstance. In the kingdom of God, praise flows from truth and trust. And in the kingdom of self, praise is contingent on circumstance. I'm going to reverse engineer this one for a minute and talk first about the kingdom of self. Praise is contingent on circumstance. That's what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 21. There's this incredible city outroar. This is an amazing worship service. This is an, an amazing outpouring of praise. There's thousands of people gathered along the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus comes in on the colt, on the baby donkey, and they're laying their cloaks down in front of him. They're laying palm branches down. They're, they're waving palm branches. They, it, this is like Jesus' coronation as king, and they're praising. Hosanna, which means save which means come quickly and save. Hosanna in the highest. They're rightly acknowledging he's the son of David. He's the promised Messiah. He's the king promised to Israel. And so they're, they're praising, but their praise is contingent on circumstance. They believe that Jesus is going to ride into town, take his place as the king of the Jews, overthrow the Romans, and this nation will now be prominent and on top. That, that's why they're praising here. They're not praising because of the eternal character and promise of God. They're not praising Jesus in spite of how he leads. They're praising Jesus because they think he's about to lead in the way that they want him to lead. They think Jesus is going to match their expectations. Jesus is going to fulfill their kingdom of self or their idolatry for safety, for comfort, for power, for prominence, for profit, 
for, for cleaning up the world according to their standards and creating this even larger, more prominent holy huddle. They think Jesus is going to do this for them. And when they find out that he's not going to, when he rides into their temple and on Monday morning overturns the money changing tables, when, when he overturns everything that they thought that he was going to do, instead of doing what they thought he should do and would do, he does the opposite. And so they quickly turn on him and they stop praising him. And instead of saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just a couple days later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. What is it in the human heart that causes us to turn on God and his son Christ that quickly? I mean, this is a, a human issue. It's not just them 2,000 years ago. This plays out all the time. We have this battle within our soul where, where we want to turn on God because he doesn't match our expectations or fulfill our desires or our dreams or give us exactly what we want. And, and it's because we wrestle with this, this selfishness and we wrestle with the kingdom of self where praise is contingent on circumstance. I don't know about you, but oftentimes over the last couple of weeks, I haven't felt like praising because the circumstances of the world right now aren't great. I, I'm stuck up in my house with my wife and kids. I love you, Brittany. I love you, Avery, Judah, and Oakley. If you're still watching, I'm sure you're not. But <laughs> man, I, I love our home. I love our kids. I love our yard. But it feels really small right now. And... My kids ask me so many times if they can watch TV because they're getting bored with all the other things that we have to do. And, and I love you guys. And it'd be so easy for us to just watch TV all day, every day. But the circumstances of life right now are just constricting. Everything has changed in the last couple of weeks. Life is not normal. And, and my natural inclination is not to praise God for it. It's to look at my circumstances and to mourn and to be depressed and to be sad and to say, woe is me. And to say, God, why are you allowing this? God, what are you doing? God, I thought you were in control. What's happening around the world? Why don't you do something about it, God? And, and that was the same heart attitude that the people had that turned them into saying, crucify him. He's not giving us what we want. He, he's not fulfilling our vision, our desire, our dreams. And so in contrast to that, the kingdom of God, it, it, it praises God not based on circumstance, it praises God based on truth and trust. The truth of who God is and trust in what God does. And we see this passage closes out this way. It says, Hosanna, okay, so the religious leaders say, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, so the religious leaders said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. So it's saying that even out of those who understand the truth of who God is and, and who have trust in him, those are the people who will praise God in the midst of the storm, regardless of what happens. When circumstances are out of our control, when circumstances in life don't match our expectations, don't match our desires, don't match what we would have done, we still praise God, those in the kingdom of God, those who understand the kingdom of God, praise him because of the truth of who he is. The other gospels say that Jesus says that if these people in Jerusalem didn't cry out and praise me, even the stones would cry out because there's this truth about who God is. He's worthy of our praise that even creation cries out and acknowledges him as king. And babies and nursing infants and those with child, childlike faith praise him because he's praiseworthy. 
and they put their trust in him. Even though they may not understand what he does or why he does it a certain way, they're able to praise him in the midst of trying circumstances and they're able to put their trust in him. That's the characteristic of the kingdom of God. And so that's what I want to remind us of this morning. Here's the good news for you this morning, church family. The good news that, that I think you need to be reminded of and that you need to respond to. You have a humble Savior who perfectly pursued Jesus in prayer. How many times have you failed to be humble? How many times have you failed to perfectly pursue Jesus in prayer? You have a humble Savior who perfectly pursued him in prayer, who always went out of his way to help and heal the hurting and who praised God regardless of the circumstance because he knew the truth and he trusted his father. That's your Jesus. That's your savior. And his righteousness is credited, credited to you through faith. And so as you look at this list, acknowledge that sometimes you find yourself living for the kingdom of self. And try to follow Jesus and imitate him by living for the kingdom of God. But when you fall short, when you fail, remember that Jesus was perfectly humble, always dependent, that he pursued the Father in prayer, that he always cared for the hurting and healed them, and that his praise was always God-directed, not based off of circumstance, but based off of the truth of who God is and his trust in the Father. And then receive his righteousness given to you.